This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. You know, we've been going through the book of Revelation, especially the seven letters to seven churches, and we started out by talking about the general epistles, the letters that the Lord has given us, the accounts to show us what the Christian faith is all about. You know, we have the gospel accounts in the book of Acts, and then we have Paul's epistles. Then we have the general epistles, and the ones we never look at are Jesus' epistles, Jesus' letters to us, and we find those in the book of Revelation, and there's actually seven of them. There's his letter to the church at Ephesus, his letter to Smyrna and Pergamos, his letter to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and of course the one that kind of rings home true to us, his letter to the church at Laodicea. We've already looked at Ephesus, and we've already looked at Smyrna, and today we're going to look at the letter to uh, the Pergamos. And as we have been doing this, going through this, there's kind of a report card summary of each of these letters. Because at the, in the, in the body of the letter, and of course at the very end, the Lord says some good things and some bad things about these letters. In Ephesus, for example, he had something good to say about them and something bad to say about them. He commended them and then he, he rebuked them. So as believers, what we need to do is model ourselves after the things that he says is good. And if we find ourselves living the, the kind of life of some of the things he said was not so good, we need to kind of move away from that and reject that. In Smyrna, of course, he only had good things to say. There's only two of these seven letters that the Lord only says good things to. There's two of these letters he only says bad things to, and the rest of them he says both good and bad things with. So when it comes to Smyrna, a church that only has something commendable said by the Lord, it seems like we need to somewhat emulate our life after that. And, and then again, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at Pergamos. Why is this important? Because the seven letters to seven churches apply to us on various levels. The first level, of course, is the local level, because Jesus actually sent seven letters to seven local churches. And if you study them historically, you'll see that there's a lot of imagery from the letters that deal with the geographic locations where they were. It also is dealing with certain issues that they were struggling with. And then, then of course, at the end of each of these letters, he makes a cryptic phrase, which he does elsewhere in Scripture, where he says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. In other words, these letters, the teaching in these letters, the admonition in these letters really apply to all churches during all church time. But the application is personal. Because when we read these letters, we see our spiritual life in them. We see ourselves in them. If if we're struggling in such a way that this church was struggling, that the admonition that Christ has to them is the same admonition he would have to us. And we saw that in the letter, for example, to Ephesus, where it says that you have left or lost or fallen from your first love. And we talked about here, was there a time in your life that you were closer to Christ, more devoted to him than you are right now? I ask you this all the time. If on a scale from 1 to 10... 10 was the closest you personally have ever been. It's not a corporate 10, it's an individual 10. Closer to the Lord than you have ever been. Your, the Word was more alive to you than it's ever been. You felt His presence in your worship and your prayer life was stronger than it's ever been and you were bearing more fruit than you have ever been. If that's a 10 for you, where are you now? And if you're an 8 or a 6 or a 5, you have, as the church in Ephesus, left your first love. And what the Lord says to them is the same thing he would say to us personally. Repent and do the things you did in the beginning. Usually what happens to us is, I won't call us mature believers, I'll call us older believers, is the fact that we get so tied up with the world that we let as the parable of the sower, the, the cares of life, 
the deceitfulness of wealth, just circumstances and persecutions cloud out the fruitfulness of the gospel message. But the most amazing part of this is these letters speak prophetically. As a matter of fact, every one of these letters line out perfectly the history of the Christian church. They give us pretty much history in advance, and they tell us about the times that were, the times that we live right now, what Christ was pleased with then and what Christ is pleased with now. And if these letters were written in any other order, this would not fit. And to me, this is the most amazing part because you can almost see various church errors, eras all tied up in these seven letters to seven churches. Each of the letters is designed the same way. It starts with the name of the church to the church at Ephesus. The title of Christ and his title of Christ are all different. And they're all different, but the imagery fits the very church that's being written. He has, he begins with his good news. He then talks about his bad news. He then gives him an exhortation. Based on the good news, you need to continue doing this. Or based on the bad news, you need to change this. Then there's a promise to the overcomer. That's not a promise to everybody. That's a promise to a person who overcomes the sin, the flesh, the times that they live in. It's a, it's a promise given to the overcomer. Then there's a closing. And the closing says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And in some of those letters, the early letters, that closing is before the promise to the overcomer. And in the latter ones, it's after that. And, I, and next week, when we get to the switch in those, I'll explain to you exactly why. Ephesus. Ephesus means desired one or darling. They were faithful, hardworking church that had obviously left their first love. And doctrine for that church had been become more important than devotion. That's something that hit me right between the eyes. Because the longer you pastor, the more doctrine becomes important. The more you want to know exactly what the Word says. You want to make sure that you're rightly dividing the Word of truth. And in our society today, in the church today, we exalt doctrine over everything. And one of the reasons why we do that is because there's so much false teaching going on out there. But the danger is that I can spend so much time studying about Christ that I fail to experience Christ that I fail to speak to Christ, that, that he becomes more of a theological or historical or religious figure rather than my God and my Savior, my Lord, my Abba, my Father. And so there's a balance there. The church in Ephesus was tilting a little too far to one side, and the Lord was trying to bring them back into a balance. I see that in my own life in the church today, that um, doctrine much, many times becomes more important than our devotion to Christ. Prophetically, of course, the letter to the church at Ephesus represents the apostolic church, the, the church of the first hundred years. It's the only letter in the scripture that talks about apostles. And he shows that at the end of the first century, when this letter was written, the church was already in trouble. They had already focused on less than the intimacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. This time frame runs from about A.D. 30 up until about the close of the canon, about um, the uh, end of the first century A.D., which brings us, of course, to their report card. In this letter, the Lord said both good and bad things about the church in Ephesus. So we got good things and we got bad things. I want to do the good. I want to correct the bad. The exhortation the Lord gives that church is the same exhortation he gives each of us. Repent and do the things that you did at first or else. And then there's, of course, the promise of something unseemly. So how do we respond to that? talked about this a couple weeks ago. Well, we have to ask ourselves individually, what are we doing or are we doing what the Lord praised the church at Ephesus for doing? Are we, as the scripture says, I know your patience and your perseverance and you cannot bear false teachers and you cannot bear those people who claim to be apostles but are not. You're full of discernment and uh, are we doing that today? Or do we have just this big tent attitude where you just come and it doesn't matter how you live or who you are or what you believe, we just want to grow artificially bigger than maybe the Lord wanted us to. Or... Are we doing what the Lord did not praise them for? Are we studying the scriptures so that we can, you know, understand every jot and tittle of the word? And yet when it comes to intimacy with Christ, we don't even remember what that's like. Theologically, we may be a 10. Doctrinally, we're a 10. But when someone says, what is your spiritual life like with Christ? Ow. I don't know, it's really been a long time when I really connected with him. It's been a long time when I when I just sat before him and, 
and just drink, drink him in. It's, it's been a long time since I felt close. I know more about him. I just don't know him as much. And then the major question we ask ourselves is, do we really care? I mean, okay, I'm not closer to the Lord than I used to be, but I'm making more money at work. And I got a new raise, and I just just made an addition to my house, and we're taking a great vacation, and my kids are doing well, and, um, you know, so, I mean, do I really care? I mean, am I okay living my Christian life by just having Jesus season my life rather than becoming all of my life? And if I do care, what are we, corporately, which means us individually, prepared to do about it? I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's a, that's a question we all need to ask ourselves. Which brings us to the next letter, Smyrna. Smyrna means suffering or death. And I shared with you two weeks ago that the Hebrew word that is translated in Septuagint, um, myrrh, or the Hebrew word tra- translated is, is myrrh, which is this thing that is crushed, and only when it's crushed does it elicit this sweet-smelling aroma. We talked about the fact that myrrh was one of the gifts that the wise men, the Magi, brought to Christ, representing his suffering and his death. This was a church that suffered greatly, but was praised by the Lord for their faithfulness and their perseverance under great trials and testing. The letter said that you will face tribulation ten days. you remember? And we talked about how that perfectly parallels the ten great Roman persecutions, beginning with Nero and ending with the uh, Diocletian persecution that this church suffered under. Prophetically, this, of course, is the persecuted church. And this time frame runs from the first century up until about the Edict of Milan, or later known as the Edict of Toleration by Emperor Constantine in 312. Actually, 312 was the date that Constantine became the supreme ruler of Rome, and the Edict didn't actually come until 13 years later. But the the era runs from when Constantine all of a sudden became the primary political figure, had a, what many people believe, a false profession of Christ, because it's really hard to claim to be a Christian and drown your wives because they displeased you and other things that he did. Um, But this time frame deals with the great persecution up until Emperor Constantine um, became the supreme ruler of Rome, which basically goes from 8100 to 312. And in this particular situation, the Lord only had good things to say about the church, nothing bad, because they were persevering under trials and tribulation. So we have the Smyrna church. We put a green check by it because this is something that we need, we need to see what they were doing. We need to be that kind of church, which raises the question, of course, do we live the kind of life that elicits persecution? What are we doing? that the Lord prays this church for? Or have we developed the idea, my four, no more, shut the door, I just, I, I'm just going to live my little life, I'm going to dance around my little maypole at home, we're going to sing our Jesus songs in our sequestered society, never are we going to go out into the world, because if we ever go out in the world, the world will try to stamp out our life, they'll try to destroy us, we'll suffer persecution, which is exactly what... The uh, epistles say all who desire to, to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. But we've kind of developed this. If you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone with the world. But the world is not leaving us alone. As a matter of fact, a couple of years ago when we had the Supreme Court ruling that basically said that um, homosexuality is now basically a civil right, that the, the world is not allowing us to live in our quiet, sequestered little huddles. They're bringing the fight to us, and that, that involves persecution, it involves suffering, it involves what the saints of old were praised for. Well, what are we prepared to do about it? I mean, how, light, how bright do we let our light shine at work? Well, if I let it shine too bright, I may lose my job or not get this promotion. Well, why do you think God gave you that job anyway? So you can advance in a company. He gave you that job that basically supports you as a missionary wherever he sends us. True? But, but the thought of that is just foreign to the church today. But we're going to look at Pergamos today. The next church. The word Pergamos comes from a combination of two Greek words. It means mixed and mixed objectionably 
and marriage. In other words, it's a, it's a mixed marriage, and this mixed marriage is what the word means, is objectionable to God. Now, the Lord could have had these letters written to any church he wanted. The church at Corinth, the church in Galatia, the th church in Thessalonica, the church in Rome. But instead, he specifically picked these particular churches, and he chose one whose names meant an unholy marriage, an unholy alliance of two incompatible entities that becomes objectionable to God. It represents the marriage of the church and state, where the state decides to elevate to the church of acceptance or political correctness at the expense of the church's devotion to God. The whole amillennial mindset, which basically um, spiritualizes much of what the scripture talks about, especially in times regarding Israel, was birthed during this time. Because Constantine did not like the fact that the church is proclaiming that a supreme sovereign ruler would come back and rule on earth for a thousand years because I, Constantine said, am the supreme sovereign ruler. And so the church says, no, 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 it's not really going to come back. That's just kind of spiritual because it's easier to kind of change our doctrine than it is to confront the state. In the letter to the church of Pergamos, I want you to follow this in your Bible. Beginning in verse number 12. It says, To the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Every time Christ is presented in these letters, he's presented with a different description of himself, a different name. He's Christ, he's Jesus, but there's an imagery or a euphemism given to describe him. And so here he's described as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, it refers to the Word of God all through Scripture. Jesus is described as the one who is identified as or identified with the Word of God, which should be, for believers, the end. It should be the final authority. There should be no more debate. There should be no more discussion. When the Word of God says this, that should settle it. The only issue that we have after we understand what the Word of God says is whether you choose or choose not to obey it. We find this phrase used several times in Scripture. Hebrews 4.12. It says, For what? The Word of God is living and active, and of course are living and powerful. The, poor, the Greek word for powerful is the word we get energy out of. It refers to energy or engaging in some sort of work, being active, effective, being able to accomplish what it begins. It says that the Word of God is living, and it also is powerful, and it is sharper, here's the imagery now, than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow, and is a discerner, this is the word of God now, of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we've got Jesus described as the one who has the two-edged swords. book of Hebrews tells us that the word of God is sharper than that. And we find in Ephesians chapter 6, where we're dealing with the spiritual armor, that one of the pieces of armor is the sword. And it says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which the Holy Spirit defines for us as the Word of God. So Jesus is coming, saying that he is one, writing to this church, writing to us today, as the one who possesses the Word of God, the final authority, the end of all discussion when it comes to the things of God. And then there's the good news. And I want you to know as we look at verse 13, that... The good news about this church is the fact that they persevered in really tough times, maybe tougher than you and I can imagine. For it talks about here that the Lord knows where they dwell. And the word dwell here means to reside in a fixed dwelling. The idea of the, of the Greek word is the fact that this is permanent, that there's a permanent dwelling here. So the Lord knows where they dwell, but he also knows it's the same place where Satan dwells. And it's the same word where Satan also has a fixed dwelling, a permanent presence there. So we've got, we've got the people dwelling in a place where Satan also has a fixed dwelling place, a, a fixed abode, where Satan also has his kingdom. We have the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness that this church in Pergamos was struggling with. 
We also find that in this place where Satan dwells is also his throne. So it's more like just a, you know, a, a franchise of Satan's kingdom over here, but his throne actually dwells there, which is, which has caused theologians for centuries to try to determine exactly what that means. What does it mean where Satan's throne is? And they've come up with pretty much four possible explanations. The first one, of course, is Pergamos was a center of pagan religion. Okay? Well, so was Corinth. And so was Rome. And so was a whole lot of other Greek cities at that time where the church was flourishing. So it's not as if the, the pagan religion in Pergamos was any greater than any of these other cities. And so most of them have said, no, it's, it's got to be something deeper than that. Well, okay, let's see what it was like for an ancient traveler that was just traveling there. So if a traveler is coming from the east, the Acropolis they had had the appearance, at least that's what people have said, of a throne. So maybe that's what they're talking about. And well, that, that can change with just a wrecking crew back then and no, no longer has it anymore. So this letter is supposed to last for to all eternity. So it has to be something deeper than that. Well, the altar of Zeus was there. And it also seemed to be a throne, yes, but there was also the altar of Zeus at, um, at Corinth, and there's also a, a, the altar, uh, an altar of Zeus in Rome and many other places. And, but the one thing that Pergamos had different than all these other areas was the fact that it was the center in that area of emperor worship. I mean, it was the hotbed of emperor worship. You either declared Caesar to be Lord and God, or you suffered great persecution. More so than the outlying cities, but in Pergamos it was powerful. And this is what the theologians believe, and I happen to agree, that it talks about where Satan's throne dwells is the center of emperor worship, where the emperor now is, is married, trying to form a mixed objectionable marriage with the church, and the church is being compelled to worship the emperor more so than God himself. Christians who refuse to acknowledge Caesar as Lord and God faced confiscations, confiscation of their property, they faced exile, and they faced death. Please hear me. This will happen someday in our country. This happens all over the world, and it will happen here. And you had best prepare yourself spiritually for the times that are coming. Because, as I talked about last week, I believe that the curse of God's abandonment is happening to America right now. That he is simply removing his protection and removing his presence because of the people's consistent sin, but more so because of the church's failure to turn from their wicked ways. You remember the passage we looked at? If my people who are called by my name, that's my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And, and here's the key, if my people will turn from their wicked ways, not the wicked people becoming holy, but the holy people quit being wicked, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. It is coming. But we'll talk about that later. The good news. I know. This is not Gnosko, this is not 1097 in the Strong's, this is Edo. It means I know cognitively, I know just like everybody else knows. I know your works. And one of the things that amazes me is all through these letters, the Lord, the Lord says, I know what you have done with Christ. I know your works. I know the out, the outflow of what supposedly happens inwardly. It's kind of like the passage in James. Show me your works and I'll show you my faith, or you show me your faith and I'll show you my works, and faith without works is dead, and all that kind of stuff. The, the idea is the fact that when you're saved, when you're changed, when a new nature happens in your life, it should produce fruits in keeping with repentance. You should outwardly be a different person than you were before because of the change that takes place in our life. That's called holiness. The biblical word for that is sanctification. It's moving closer to Christ-likeness every single day. If you're the same person, if you watch the same movies and use the same language and hang around the same people and do the same things after Christ as you did before Christ, then somebody would look at you and say, Jesus had no impact in your life at all. Explain to me why I should embrace your Christ when it hasn't had any impact. As a matter of fact, I'm even a better person than you are. There's always a change that takes place. 
Jesus never said, you will know my disciples because they were baptized. You will know my disciples because of their church attendance. You will know my disciples by their professions of faith. You will moan my disciples by the things that I produce in them, my fruits. It says, I know your works. And the word here is egron, and it means labor or performance, or really it's the result of employment. These are the things, in this Greek word, these are the things that you would expect for somebody who's a Christian. I know your works, and I know where you dwell. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. But here's the good news. In spite of all the satanic attacks, in spite of all the pressure to conform, in spite of all of that, that you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days with Antipas, my faithful, well, in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. That even when the persecution became so great that this obvious church leader was killed in front of everybody as a testimony to, here's what happens when you reject the state, that you still held on to my name and you did not deny my faith. This is kind of the testimony of the church in communist countries today. It's the testimony of the church in, in Indonesia. It's the testimony of the church in Korea. It's the testimony of the church in China and many other places, especially in, in Muslim countries where people are killed and people are martyred. And I, I shared a couple weeks with you about the destruction is taking place of Christians and the, the Christians that are being killed overseas for their faith. And we don't really hear about it because it doesn't really affect us. And, you know, we're too busy wanting to see who's going to be on American Idol or how the draft's going to come from the Carolina Panthers or all that kind of exciting stuff. And we forget about the fact that, that this church is, the, the, the church of Christ is pretty much built on the blood of the martyrs. But, but we, we, we've, we've never even suffered. The most we've ever suffered for our faith is somebody says, I don't want to be a friend with you anymore. Or a girlfriend or a boyfriend break up with us because of, of the Jesus in us. Or, or we don't get invited to some sort of party and we get emotionally kind of hurt because of that. None of us have suffered. I'm painting with a broad brush here. I would assume that none of us or very few of us have ever been punched in the face for your faith. Some of us may have been cussed at for your faith, but it's, it's not a lasting deal. Most of us have never even lost jobs because of our faith, because we hold on to we hold on to that more than our devotion to Christ, to this church. I know your works, and I know where you dwell. I know how tough it is. I know how tough it is to, for you living in a town where Satan's throne is. I know how tough it is being a saved wife with four or five or six kids in a home with a husband who hates Jesus. I know the pressure that you're going through, and I know that you, you, you've been hurt and terrible things have been said to you, but I know that you haven't denied my name and you haven't denied my faith. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be the only light in a dark room of a family or, or people that you've grown up with, and I know the persecution that they give you. I know I know most situation, being the only saved ex-Muslim in his entire Muslim family, when he gets together with all his family and friends, and I know what that's like. And I know that you have not denied my name, even when Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed in front of you. Which raises the question, I mean... What do we know about him, and, and what do we know about this faithful martyr? The <coughs> tradition tells us, and the early historians tell us, that he was probably a leader in the church of Pergamos, and he probably died during the Diocletian persecution. In other words, when the Lord's writing this letter to this apostolic or to this church at this time, in this prophetic time. It's, this is something they all remembered, the, the death of this man. According to tradition, he was roasted to death inside of a brass bull during the persecution instigated by Domitian. And it was a public execution, and it was a horrific execution, and it was like, if you continue with Christ, this is what's going to happen to you, but nevertheless, they did so even at this time, the church in Pergamos is being commended because of their faithfulness to him. And, and again, what about the faithful martyr? I mean, it's, it's amazing that Christ uses the same phrase for this man as he uses for himself. In Revelation 1, 5 and 6, 
It says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, described as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. I mean, Jesus is described as just how Antipas is described, as a faithful witness and a faithful testimony, even unto death. And then to the letter of the church at Laodicea, which in my opinion is the worst of the lot, he chooses to describe himself also as faithful. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says who? The amen. The faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. The church of Pergamos was located in the center of emperor worship and was persecuted for their devotion to Christ. Yet as the Lord commended them because of their devotion, that they held fast to his name even in the face of death, but unlike the church that preceded them in Smyrna, they didn't hold fast to the end. Many of them compromised and became politically correct and worldly, just like our church today. They decided to lower the walls of holiness. They decided to let the world in. They decided that it was okay not to be so heavenly minded that you have no earthly good defined by those people, earthly good, who live on the earth. So the Lord gave them some bad news. But I have a few things against you. Again, I want you to think what it would be like if you were standing before the judgment seat of Christ and the Lord was commending you. Ah, here's Steve. Steve, I'm telling you, in your faith and your perseverance has been wonderful that you've stayed faithful to me and you've done this and done that and done that. Boy, I would... It'd feel great, oh, hallelujah, and all the suffering and the pain and adulation and all the tough times and just what it's like living as a saved person in a lost world really paid off because you know, God has been able to say some good things. And all of a sudden he pauses and he gives them that classic comma, but. You know, I, I love you, comma, but. But Steve, I have a few things against you and your heart drops. <sighs> the Lord Almighty has a few things against his church. So what are they, Lord? I mean, we, we've done well. We, we, we've stood firm. We, I thought we were doing everything we should do. Yes, but says, but you have there, where? In the church, in your church, in the church of Pergamos. You may be standing firm, but there's some people in the church that are, are heretical. There's some people in the church that are leading people astray. There's some people in the church that are introducing horrible doctrine sexual perversions into the church and you've done nothing but I have a few things against you because you have there in the church those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Well, what in the world is that? Can I get your Old Testament out and look at the story of Balaam and of course Balaam was um, wanted to curse Israel's children and he hired prophets from Israel to come do that and of course God prevented all that from happening and every time he wanted to do it it turned out to be a blessing and so he said look you want to destroy Israel here's what you do you let him intermarry with lost people you let them you let them take wives instead of keeping separate like God wanted them to you you let them take wives from from your people and and because of sexual immorality they'll lead them astray pretty soon they'll be sacrificing to your pagan idols and they'll be involved in and your sexual practices and and immorality and idolatry and, and that's how you do that and you know, those in the church who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. And we have that in the church today. We have those people who would never, ever preach against premarital sex. I mean, come on, you don't buy a car without driving it. You don't want to get married without that. We, you know, we, the church clearly says in order to be an elder or a pastor in a church, that you have to be the husband of one wife. Well, you know, what does that mean? Well, it's meant historically for 1900 years, the husband of one wife means that you are a husband of one wife, that you have been married one time. But then since the divorce rate in the church today is 60-something is percent, actually greater than the divorce rate of the law society, which is shameful 
for us, then we reinterpret that and say, well, no, really doesn't mean husband of one wife. It really means that you're only married or you're devoted to the woman that you're married to now. It, it may have been your fifth wife, but you're, well, how long do you have to be devoted? I don't know, six months, a year, I don't know. Scripture doesn't know. We, we just kind of walk along. And then you have churches that say it doesn't have to be a husband of one wife because that husband is a racist um, sexist term because women can be pastors too and so we kind of cast that out of the way and we watch television which inundate, inundates us with sexual immorality and we're not bothered with it at all I mean it's just commonplace people can be having affairs and people can be cheating on their wives but it's all sort of the storyline and we don't really care and then we go on Facebook and brag about what a cool movie it was or a cool TV show it was and it doesn't bother us anymore. I mean, it should highly offend us, but it doesn't. And he says, in the church, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. This is twice now that this group of people have been mentioned. They were mentioned in the first century and are in the first letter. Now they're mentioned in the third letters. And if you really study them, they started out by wanting some sort of, of division between the clergy and the laity. They wanted separate rules for pastors than they were for everybody else. And the church kind of stood against that in the church age of the of Ephesus. But now we're rolling around here. And if you'll study historically, you will find out that this group of people told the church that it was okay for Christians to participate in sexual orgies that they were having at that time in the Roman Empire. And the church says, hey, why not? And what, he's, what the Lord is commending them or condemning them for, it says, look, you may have stayed firm. You may have remained holy in your own family. Your personal righteousness may have been great. But when you come together as a body of Christ, you have these people in your church that are leading my people astray, and you've done nothing about it. Nothing. Oh, we're just going to live and let live. We're going to don't ask, don't tell. We're going to, it's going to be okay. We don't want to say anything because if they leave, they take their tithe with them, and we don't want that to happen because we've got a building that we've got to pay for that stays empty most of the time or or, you know, they're going to sue us. Or what's the point of us taking a strong stance against a man here who's left his wife and now living with his, uh, moved in with his secretary and still wants to be a leader in the church or come to church and not have his sin confronted? Why do we want to get involved in church discipline? Because all he'll do is go down the street and join that church and that pastor will never contact us over here to say, hey, what was this guy like? Why did he leave your church? Since I've been a pastor for 30-something years, the people that have come and gone for whatever reason, I have never had one pastor call me and say, hey, um, uh, Frank, has, uh, I know he's, he was in your church for a number of years and you were his pastor and he's come to our church and he would like, uh, you know, he'd like to, to join our church and have me to be his pastor. And yeah, can you tell me something about him? Well, why did he leave your church? Or is there something I need to know? Not one pastor ever has done that. Why? We don't get involved in that. We don't want to cause a fight. I mean, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and it's okay. And the Lord said to the church of Pergamos, I have a few things against you because you have in your church those that hold the heretical, sinful, hurtful doctrines. And you've done nothing about it. What was the church's at Pergamos position against these two groups within the church? Nothing. Nothing. Now, what is the church's position against the heresies that we have within the church that are just often, not always, but often just projected on television and the Internet? And I mean, What do we do about those things? Nothing. We come to our church and we fellowship with the people and hear the message that we want, get involved in ministry, and, and then we go home. And that, that's their life. That's, that's what they do. And, and we don't even bother about that stuff anymore because... We don't want to be judgmental because the world and the carnal church has told us that it's a sin to be to judge anything. Thou shall not judge. That's not what the scripture teaches. It says that when you do judge, you better beware because the same standard that you're using is the same standard you're going to be judged by. In other words, make sure before you pick out the speck in somebody else's eye that you've got your own life in order because most of the church today does not have its life in order and most of the, uh, the church says, listen, I won't talk to you about your drinking if you won't talk to me about my porn. So therefore, we just kind of rock on 
towards oblivion. The exhortation. Repent. It's always there. Repent. So what if I don't? What if the church doesn't repent? And, I, and, and I'm amazed at this letter that the Lord puts up an urgency behind it. It's not repent or I'll do this. It's repent or I will come to you quickly. This has got to be stamped out now. My church should emulate and represent the holiness of the Lord who's to be master of that church. Repent or I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, with my word. Well, as you're reading this, you come up with two words. You find you and them. Repent, or I will come to you, the church, quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And if you will study, if you'll break down the Greek and you look at the context, you will find that the pronouns for you and them both are referring to the church at Pergamos. Repent, or I will come against you. I will fight against the church. I will fight against my erring people. The church at Pergamos because of the sin in their life. You know, one of the verses that we fail to hold on to that I have found in my own life to be the most true. I mean, some verses we accept on faith. We don't know if they're true because we haven't experienced them. Such as... In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. We don't know if that's true. We believe that on faith, but none of us have experienced that because we haven't seen the mansion and been to heaven. True? So we, we believe it's true based on faith. But there's a verse that says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. And we not only accept that on faith, but you've experienced it in your own life. And so have I. It doesn't work the other way around. It doesn't take your godly daughter evangelistically dating this ungodly man and thinking by osmosis, by her witness and testimony, that she's going to draw him. To faith. It doesn't work that way. It works exactly the opposite. And the Lord knew that, and that's why he said, don't be deceived. Don't think you're different. Bad company corrupts good character, and therefore the, the it happens in a church. If you've got a holy church and a bunch of sinning people that uh, that are allowed to sin unabased and just unconfronted, then pretty soon the, the, the spirit of holiness in the church begins to drop and you'll find more people heading over to that because sin is fun for a season and, and we end up in a situation that we're at right now. The Lord is saying if the church doesn't repent, he'll come to the church quickly and fight against it with the sword of his mouth. I would not like that to happen, would you? And the church is not just corporate church. Church is you. Church is a, an assembly of called out ones. It's people that have the Holy Spirit. When a, group of, when a group of people get together that aren't saved and there's no Holy Spirit and they declare it to be a church, it's not. Matter of fact, I was watching Fox News last night and they had somebody on who started the church of the, I think it's Reefer Church in Denver, where they just worship marijuana. And they all come and do that, and they're applying for 5013C taxes and status, which of course they'll get, but there's no Holy Spirit. It's not a church. They can call it what they want, but it's only when the Holy Spirit is there that called out ones are together. And so when it talks about the church, it begins with you and it begins with me. When we come together corporately, it's all made up of individual believers and the Spirit in each of us. So what was the sin of the church at Pergamos? Listen very carefully. It was compromised with the world. We don't want the world to come against us. We don't want to be thought as judgmental. We don't want the world not to like us. So therefore, we're going to become more and more like the world. Jesus said that if they've done, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, Satan, Lord of the flies, how much more will they call you as servants of the master? We want to compromise with the world. You know, if they want to do their thing. We'll kind of hang with them. Maybe we won't get involved in a deep, dark, gross, immoral sins. But we don't want them to know there's that much difference between us and them because we want to fellowship with them because the idea today is I have to build a bridge. I can't share Christ unless I build an emotional bridge with a lost person. And the way I build an emotional bridge with a lost person is become their friend. Based on what? Worldview? Based on holiness or righteousness or the Word of God? No, it's based on activity. It's based on their likes and my likes and all that kind of stuff. So once I build a bridge to a lost person and become kind of like them, then I have the right to speak Christ into them. That's totally devoid of any support in Scripture. 
Compromise with the world. Number two, lack of discernment and lack of church discipline. Man, it should be hard to become a member of a church. I mean, you should, you should be able to prove by your actions and your spiritual fruit that you truly are a member of Christ. If we were under persecution like the churches in China, for example, let's say we didn't have a place to meet and you know we had to huddle together and all of a sudden somebody walked up and says, hey, I'm a Christian, will you accept me? And we would never do that, never. It's probably a government plan. Probably, I don't know, you can't, can't trust this guy. You know, there's, there's a shared, uh, shared loss here. And so when that person comes in, we would want to make sure that they truly were a believer in Christ. We just open up the big door and let everybody in. Because bigger's better in America. And the other problem with the sin of the church of Pergamos was worldliness within the church. It's one thing to be worldly out there. It's another thing to be worldly in here. And when we preach against worldliness, when we preach against sin and all that kind of stuff, those kind of preachers are pegged as holiness preachers and nobody really likes them anymore because they're being judgmental and they make us feel uncomfortable. And But our, our duty as believers is to be holy as He is holy. I mean, of all the attributes of God, patience and long-suffering and love and grace and of all the long sufferings, both Isaiah and John, when they were before the throne and they saw the four living creatures crying out the attributes of God, the only attribute that is listed is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The same attribute that Jesus says that we are to be holy. How holy? Like I am now? No. Just as your heavenly Father in heaven is holy. So I'm looking at the church at Pergamos and then I'm looking at the sin in the church today in general. And I find that uh, the church situation today parallels the church of Pergamos in many ways. Let me, uh, let me just take a second. And we're going to talk a lot more about this probably in a month or a month and a half when we get to it. But let's take a look at the church at Laodicea, which is in the church age in which we live right now. If you wanted to know the prevailing, the prevailing church age or the prevailing attitude of the church and society today, it's summed up with this last letter. Go and turn to Revelation chapter 3 uh, in the church at Laodicea. And let me just show you a couple things in here which I think are pretty amazing. To the angel of the church at Laodicea, of the Laodiceans write, and by the word, the word Laodicea means the rule of the people. It's the people who rule in Laodicea, just like it is today. These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Once again, I know your works. I know what you've accomplished. I know what you do in my name. I know what you think you're doing to please me. And I know your works, and in your works you are neither cold nor hot. You're just pretty much apathetic. You're not doing things because you don't love Jesus, and you're, you're not doing other things because you do love Jesus. You're just kind of going through the motions. You're just kind of doing what is expected to do. Jesus said, I could wish that you were cold or hot. I wish you were on one of the extremes. I could deal with you being hot for me. I could deal with you being cold for me. But the fact that you're just kind of apathetic and don't really care. Oh, I used to be a 10, but I'm a 6, spiritually. How long have you been a 6? 12 years, and I'm okay being a six. How? How could you, how could you tasted what it was like, the closest you've ever been to Christ and ever be satisfied for something less? Well, because I got things to do and jobs and the world and money and, and the Lord says, so then because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. No, it's one thing for the Lord to say that I will come against you and fight against you with the word of God. But it's another thing to have the Lord said that you churn his stomach to the point that he projectile vomits you out of his mouth. I can't think of any other words that are as chilling as these. And this is what he says to the prevailing church age in which we live. Why? Why do you want to vomit us out of your mouth? What have we done? Because you say, this is how you view yourself, church. I am rich, and we do. And have become wealthy, and we have, and have need of nothing. And there's the rub. Our relationship with Christ is supposed to be a dependent relationship. He is Lord, we are slave, we are doulos. We're to, we're to take all our orders and our, our 
marching orders from him. Jesus himself modeled it over and over again. I don't do anything on my own accord. The words that I hear are the words that the Father gives me. Whatever he says is what I do. The relationship I'm having with the Father is the same relationship you're to have with me. But we become rich and become wealthy, and we don't need anything. We don't even need the Holy Spirit, because we can manifest some sort of experience of esoteric bells and whistles and rock bands and smoke and all that kind of stuff and make you feel something and disguise that as God. That's how you view yourselves. But he says, here's how I view you. And do you not know that you are wretched? Man, that's a tough word. That's a tough word. It's one thing to say, you know, I'm really irritated at you. Or you're a bad person. It's another thing to say, man, you are wretched. Wretched. And you are miserable. And you're not rich, you're actually poor, and you're blind, and you're naked. I mean, you're covered with nothing. You're certainly not covered with robes of righteousness that I give you. What do we do? I counsel that you buy from me, the Lord says. This is not gold that you have. You buy from me gold refined by fire. So there's, a, there's a testing in there, there's a tribulation in there, there's a... There's a burning away of the dross. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a getting away from the impurities and holding on to that is pure. But let me do that, he says. Then you'll truly be rich and white garments to cover your nakedness because the white garments are robes of righteousness that you may be clothed. Clothed from what? The shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. The fact is that we don't even know we're naked. We think we're doing okay. And to anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. We're so blind to the culture in which we live that we don't even think the Lord views us like this. Why would you want us to, why would you want to take us through the refining like gold? It's easy. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. We don't want a rebuke and we don't want a chastening. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I've shared this with you before. This is not an evangelistic verse. The Lord Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and knocking. And if you will open that door, he will come in. That's, that's not what this verse means. The Lord is outside of his church. Outside of his church. The church has is, is grown massively in the West. We have congregations that have 50 satellite campuses and 50,000 people, and God's on the outside saying, can I get in my church? Will you open the door and let me come into my church? It's a wide road and a narrow path. I'm the Lord, I determine. If anyone hears my voice, which is the first requirement, and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. I will have fellowship with him once again. To him who overcomes, and look at this, in this age, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Again, we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pretty chilling words for the church at Pergamos. And then there's closing words and a promise. He who has ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on a stone a new name written on it, which no one knows except him who receives it. It's kind of a personal thing between him and the Lord, and I won't take the time to, to get into these verses. But I do want you to note that here the promise is after the closing argument, and that will switch very shortly. Prophetically, what does this church represent? Time-wise, this represents the time that the church was married to the state and to the world. It's a uh, a time when heathenism was Christianized. Pagan temples became Christian churches and heathen festivals were converted to Christian ones. Pagan priests slipped into the office as Christian priests. Constantine became emperor of all of Rome and he decided later on in a couple of years, about a decade later, to make Christianity not only acceptable but also make it um, encouraged. And so therefore paganism was out. Christianity was in, so now pagan temples became pagan churches and pagan priests became Christian priests and everybody could come and become a Christian and it cost them nothing and all of a sudden the church became married to the world and things began to change horrifically. This, this and 
later on in the Middle Ages, mostly here, is where all of a sudden we came up with our holidays today, like Christmas. I mean, that was a pagan holiday. The winter solstice was a pagan holiday that we've just decided to, to sanctify, and that's why we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ, in a time where the mountains in Judea were impassable. I mean, we, we know that Jesus wasn't born at Christmas. He was probably born more around Easter time. And, and the fact is that, that all of a sudden, everybody just kind of accepted it. The church and the state, we don't want to say anything that's going to deal with the, the, the great emperor here, and everything became okay. And this period ran from about 312 A.D. to 606 A.D., and 606 A.D. is when Boniface III became the first official pope. And we'll talk about that next week. A pastor once said, which summarizes this whole era, he says, what persecution didn't accomplish, the destruction of the church, marriage to the world did. And all of a sudden, there's not much difference between the church and the world. Let me ask you a question. Who speaks authoritatively for the church today? No one. No one. As a matter of fact, if Larry King decided that he wanted to have some pastors on there, some church leaders on there, to talk about whether or not um, gay marriage is acceptable in the church, he could line up 50 guys to agree with whatever position he wanted to have. Because nobody speaks authoritatively for the church anymore. And those people who hold to a biblical worldview, we just let the other guys kind of go and don't really want to get involved in that because you know they're speaking for Christ on a much bigger platform than we are because the world is listening to their voices. And day by day, you'll see churches that will go over to the dark side. Day by day, this church or this denominational body or this synod will say, hey, we've decided to go ahead and ordain a gay, lesbian uh couples into the ministry. You never see it working the other way. You never see somebody who says, yes, our church did take this position on abortion and homosexuality and, and sin, but now we've seen the light and we've repented and now we're coming back into a more conservative fold. It never works that way. Have you ever seen one? No, it's always the other way. Bad company corrupts good character and we do nothing about it. Not just as a church, but even in our own body. Nothing about it. Let me show you how this worked, and I'll close. In 316, Constantine set out to defeat the forces of Maximinius, and uh, or Maximinius, and he uh, defeated them. Uh, he defeated him um, after having this vision. And the night before this great battle, he saw in Latin uh, this phrase, which means, "And in, in this sign thou shalt conquer." And Constantine said that he saw the sign of the cross. And so when he saw the sign of the cross, in this sign. Thou shalt conquer. What he did is called all the soldiers together and he baptized them by making them walk through a shallow pool, um, kind of kicked the water out with their feet, and he put crosses on their shield and they went to battle and he became the supreme ruler of Rome at that time by defeating his rival. And immediately after that happened, because of the rival, he declared himself to be a Christian. You should study his life. Very few men had committed the atrocities that he has committed, even though he claimed to be a Christian. In 325, for political reasons, he issued the Edict of Toleration, which basically established freedom of religion, and he favored Christians at court and exempted Christian ministers from taxes. Now there's a blending here. And issued a general exhortation to all his subjects to become Christians. And why not? They were faithful, and they were loyal, and they were good, and they were giving... In 330, he then moved his capital of the empire from Rome to Byzantium and changed his name to Constantinople, kind of naming it after himself. He's getting older now. We find out that after he died, there's a couple other Roman emperors. One of them that's kind of important to Christianity is a man named Julian the Apostate. And he's called an apostate because he's a very carnal man, and, and he sought to do away with the inroads that Christianity had made and now restore paganism throughout the empire. Of course, his rule was kind of short-lived, and that was unable to happen. After him, the next Roman emperor, Jovian, reestablished the Christian religion in the empire. And from 378 to 395, Theodosius made Christianity the state religion by forcing conversions and filled the church with unregenerate people. If all of a sudden, we had a president, Donald Trump decided, I'm going to write an executive order and says everybody in the United States, say you had the power to do this 
and everybody had to comply. Everybody has to come to church. You have to become a Christian. Then probably all these lost neighbors that live around this building by threat of law would show up the next Sunday because they had to. But they weren't saved. And all of a sudden the church grew, but it was married to, to lost people and the holiness of the church was just trampled underneath. So much so that watch what happened. By 300 A.D., prayers are being offered by the church for the dead. Really? Where, where did that come from? Well, it was a pagan thing that they did, and, and so therefore it's now been incorporated into the church. Same years, they started making the sign of the cross, which is kind of like a it's kind of like an incantation physically. By 375, the church began worshiping saints and angels. Why? Because that's Satan's job. Satan's job is to get the affections and the point of our worship off Christ. And if we can worship anything other than Christ, even saints, even angels, even Mary, if we can get our affections off Christ, then he wins. And all of a sudden, the church now, being married to that, has begun worshiping not just the single God, because we don't want to focus on a single God, but in paganism, you worship all these other gods. We're going to worship those too. By 394, Mass was first instituted in the church. By 431, the worship of Mary began. I mean, how did that happen? And all of a sudden, the church is now worshiping a woman. Later on, we find that they say that she also ascended into heaven, and we find that she never died either. And the church just goes along with that. Somebody starts preaching this doctrine in the church, and the church does nothing about it. By 500, the church began dressing differently from the laymen. The Nicolaitans won. They have some sort of distinction between it's not a body anymore, it's a business with management and with labor. By 26, the idea of extreme unction came into being. Extreme unction is when you would call a pastor or a priest and he would go to a dead person or somebody who was dying or somebody who was really sick and give them last rites. And you'd pray for them. And just his prayer, the extreme intensity of that prayer would now usher that person's soul into heaven when they died. Where is that found anywhere in Scripture? At 593, there's the doctrine of purgatory is now introduced. There's not hell anymore. There's kind of purgatory. There's this purgatory place where, you know, you don't, it's not when you die and then you go to the judgment seat of Christ or all that kind of stuff or, or, or go to hell. There's this purgatory. How long does purgatory last? Well, the church hasn't defined that yet. They will in the Middle Ages and they'll use it as a fundraising scheme to be able to fund the Crusades. Where, for example, you know, your, your grandmother died, Steve, and she's in purgatory right now. She's going to be in purgatory for 600 years. However, if you make a donation of your house to the church so we can have this holy crusade, we'll, the church will shorten that to just 30 years or better than that three years, and she'll be out by 2020. Well, what man would not do that? The whole doctrine of purgatory. And where's the church? Where's, where are those people who are standing up for this heresy? And you'll find that bad company corrupts good character, and the church is now moving in that direction, and those people who now stood against it, who stood for sound, orthodox, biblical doctrine, are the fringe movements. By 600 AD, worship is now conducted in Latin. Why? Because we don't want you guys to know what we's doing. And so only the priests knew Latin, the other people didn't, and so we just kind of kept the congregation ignorant. And this lasted for a thousand, almost a thousand years. By 600 AD, prayers are being offered to Mary. Over and over and over again. Now, as bad as this sounds, the Lord still had good and bad things to say about the church of Pergamos. So we've got Ephesus, good and bad. We've got Smyrna, good. And now Pergamos, we have good and bad bad. So what does it mean, the practical application of all of this? How should we, as his church, respond to compromise and worldliness within the church? What should we do? Should we ignore it? You know, I just love them so much that I don't want to talk to them about the fact that they're living in sin, you know, because if I do that, they'll quit coming to church, and so I'm not going to say anything, and it's going to be okay. And so this person comes, and they're living together, and they're not married. The church says nothing. The pastor says nothing. Everybody accepts them like the sin was no big deal. And then all of a sudden, they've got another couple doing the same thing, and another couple doing the same thing. We didn't do anything. We, nobody did anything with them. Then, yeah, it's a license to sin. How is the church supposed to handle that? 
Well, I don't want to say anything about it. Why? Well, because, you know, my wife and I are having some problems ourselves. And I need to get my own life fixed up first before I, I've got the right to speak into somebody else, which is true. The old speck and log in the eye. But since we're not willing to make our own lives Christ-like, then we don't want to point it out to anybody else to try to help and encourage them. And so the church just goes on this slide down towards apathy, towards lukewarmness to the Lord wanting to vomit us out of his mouth. What can we do as a congregation to foster a spirit of holiness in our time together? Well, two things. We could confront the lack of holiness, or we could exalt holiness when we see it. And as soon as we exalt holiness when we see it, then the other people in the church who aren't living that way, i just picking favorites, I can't believe it, I don't like this person, they're so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. Like, for some reason, that's like a mantra that ends the argument. So what can you and me, as a member of his body, do to present yourself before him spotless? Well, actually, uh, it's the imputed righteousness of Christ that allows me to go to him, so my spotlessness... Okay, I got that. I got that positional sanctification, but that's not an excuse to sin. What can you do to make yourself more righteous in his sight? more holy in his sight, more like him. What areas of your life need to be addressed? And of course, the question we ask at the end of all of these is what are you prepared to do about it? Because it will be painful, and it will be tough, and it will cost you something. And if you wake up tomorrow morning and you say, Lord, is there anything standing between me and a deeper relationship with you? Because I want to live a holy life for you. He will point out a few things. Some that are easy to deal with and some that are very difficult. And if you deal with those, he'll point out more. If you fail to deal with those, you're going to find your spiritual life will stagnate. And then I'll ask you, where are you at with Jesus right now? And your answer will be, oh, about a six, maybe a five. Well, what would it take to be a ten? Well, I know I need to do this or get rid of this or repent of this. Well, why aren't we? I'm okay being a six. And that's the history of our church in America today. Let me pray.